Well, this morning, um, regrets we, we truly uh, won't have, but definitely things maybe we've struggled before with thinking or wanting and desiring. Um, as we look at 1 Samuel this morning, I, I want us again to talk about parenting. Parenting is hard. Um, obviously, it's not easy for those of you who are parents or have parented. You get that. You know that. Um, and most of us are probably painfully aware that we're not going to be perfect parents. And we grieve the thought that we are not going to have perfect kids either. So does that mean that you and I just throw up our hands and leave our parenting to the wind and just hope that it all ends good in the end? Uh, of course not. Um, we have the opportunity to influence our kids, and our influence is, is crucial. Uh, what kind of influence will we have in the end? Um, from today's text, we see that we have, as parents, an important and really a, a powerful influence in the lives of our kids. And so I want us to see from today's text, um, as parents, the influence we have, but really as, as God's children, as his disciples, the influence we have um, in our lives uh, toward other people, but especially as parents to our kids. Now, if you were here uh, last week, or if you weren't here last week, we started in 1 Samuel looking at uh, this two-week series on, on parenting uh, from what we learned from uh, the life of, of Samuel and his, his mom, Hannah, and the other players that we find here in 1 Samuel. And so this morning, if you'll stay there this morning and look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, I want us to verse, look at verse 11. And as we look at this idea of influence, what kind of influence we have, the powerful influence that we have as parents and really disciples of Christ, I want us to get caught up on, on what's going on here, um, especially if you were unable to be with us last week. But look at verse 11. It says, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, who is this boy? He's Samuel. Um, obviously, this letter bears the name of this little boy. But this boy was ministering to the Lord before Eli the priest. And so what did we learn last week? Well, Elkanah and his wife could not have children. God had closed her womb. That's what we read about in chapter 1. But by the grace of God, God had opened up uh, Hannah's womb and allowed her to bear a son. And his name was Samuel. We saw that last week. And we see that Hannah, before Samuel is even born, she commits Samuel to the Lord as she has dedicated her own life to God. She's now dedicating her son's life to the Lord. And so for the first three years or so, she raises Samuel up. And then around the age of three, she takes him to Shiloh, where the house of the Lord is, and leaves Samuel there to now worship God, to minister before the Lord, to, to uh, follow through on her vow that she made to the Lord. And what we see with Hannah is, is one who's experienced the grace of God. God did for her what she could not do for herself. And so that's what grace is. That's what the favor of God is. And so we see Hannah experiencing that. And we see the story of grace continue here as we see Samuel now is in the house of the Lord where he will minister forever. But he's not the only one there. 
Eli the priest is there as well, and so were his sons, Hophni, and uh, not Phineas, but uh, Phineas. Um, and here we see in the midst of Samuel, along with really these two knuckleheads, okay, uh, the power of influence that we can have as parents and in the lives of others. And so what I want to do this morning is, is really just a few things. One, I want us to see Eli's house, his family. And then I want us to walk across the street and look at um, Elkanah and Hannah and their family. And I want us to look at, at, at their influence and then how it impacted their kids. And then at the end, I want us just to sit back and, and think about, in light of what we hear from all the laughter, no, uh, from this text, I want us to sit back and I want us to ask ourselves, what, what kind of influence should we have? And what should that influence really look like? And so we'll look at some application. Um, but let's look at the house of Eli first. Could we look at verse 12? In chapter 2, it says this about the sons of Eli, that they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And so stop there for a second. They were worthless men. Um, that's that's a great, not a really cool thing to have be said about you. In fact, Hannah, if you remember last week, Hannah, uh, Eli thought she was drunk. Do you remember that? She's, she's praying before the Lord. She's filled with the Spirit. Um, her mouth was moving. She was praying in her heart. Words weren't coming out. And Eli, who's a priest of God, uh, thought she was drunk. And she says to Eli, Eli, don't think I'm worthless. Remember that? Don't think I'm, I'm like that. But here we find that Eli's sons were worthless men. That phrase right there literally is the sons of Belial. Uh, it means vile persons. Uh, such people were committed to idolatry, sexual immorality. They, they were liars. And they were. That's who they were. They were worthless men. Not only that, it says that they did not know the Lord. It, it means they didn't pay attention to the Lord. We see that in the text. And therefore, they were wicked in God's sight. And so these were Eli's two boys. It goes on to say about them what they did in verse 13 through 17. It says, um, Nor did they know the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come up while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And I want to pause there for a second before we continue. They didn't treat the offerings as the Lord as they were supposed to. They were supposed to treat them in a special way. The law ordered the priest to handle the offerings in a particular way to respect God's holiness. And Eli's sons instead served God the way they chose to serve God. And how did they do that? Look at verse 14. It says, then he would thrust uh, the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there also before they uh, before they burned the fat the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing give the priest meat for roasting as he will not take boiled meat from you only raw. If the man said to him they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire then he would say no but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Can we stop for a second? These are servants of the Lord. <laughs> wow. And then it says in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of 
the Lord. You see, the best portion of the offering was what? It was, it was supposed to be the fat, right? Because it was, it was the best. It was the best of the firstborn of one's flock, and it was to belong to the Lord, the offering was. Not to be eaten, not to be consumed. In fact, we see that all the way back in the day of Cain and Abel with Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So the priest had the duty of burning this offering before the Lord, but instead, what were they doing? They were eating off of it which was strictly forbidden. And so Eli's sons were living off this luxurious food, literally off the fat of the land. They were wicked. They were wicked. So we find more about them in the following verses. Look at verse 22, along with their dad. In verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old. We'll get back to that in a second, but that's significant. And he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And so the sons of Eli, they followed what? The, the way of the culture, the way of the Canaanites. They practiced this religious prostitution rather than the Mosaic law. They were supposed to be teaching how to live in a way to honor the Lord, yet they themselves failed to live a life of purity themselves. And so these were his sons. But look what it says about Eli. It says he was a very old man. What do we know about older men. What are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be wise. They're supposed to demonstrate wisdom. That's why that phrase is here. It's to make the point that here is Eli at an age where he should be demonstrating wisdom, but he fails to do that. Look what it says in verse 22 again. It says that he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now he had been told about what he probably knew or should have known, right? What he should have known. What he probably observed, what he should have been controlling and calling out already. But what we're going to see here is his offenses run much deeper than just a lack of attentiveness. There's things much deeper with him that we're going to find out. But look at verse 23. He said to them, this is Eli, saying to his sons, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen, the boys would not, to the voice of their dad, for the Lord desired to put them to death. We've all been there before. Maybe we receive word or we get a phone call or something from another parent, right, calling and saying, hey, your kid did this, or I've heard this about your kid. We, we don't like that. And, and so word was circulating back to Eli, right? Uh, we need that, though. We need other parents. We need other people, other circles helping us, right? We need those. Those are important. And we find that here as word is circulating back to Eli, that his boys are acting like and he tells them, he says, listen, hey, hey, if there's an offense between two, there can be a mediator. But when you're dealing with God, there is basically what he's saying here, no one to intervene for you. He's basically saying, hey, judgment's going to come upon you. It's going to end up in your doom because of your actions. And so what do they do? They don't listen. Obviously, they haven't been listening. They don't repent. They haven't been repenting. And they failed to on this occasion. 
And so look what happens in verse 27 and 28. A prophet comes to Eli, the man of God, came to Eli, said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them? from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry up an ephod before the Lord. And I did, did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? So what is this prophet telling Eli? He's saying, think about how God has been gracious to you, to the people of Israel, in delivering you from the hands of of the Egyptians through the Exodus deliverance. Think about how God's been gracious to you, giving you the opportunity to serve and your sons to serve in the house of the Lord as priests. And so what is this prophet doing? He's, he's telling Eli, you have greatly undervalued the grace of God. You have not valued God's grace whatsoever. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. God had showed them great grace. They had failed to depend on the Lord. They had failed to lack, or they, have, they had failed in their lack of trust, their lack of gratitude, their lack of obedience. And we're going to talk more about that in a second because I think that's the story here, to be honest with you. You see, the story that's going on with Hannah and Samuel and the story of Eli and his sons is about grace. And here, the sons of Eli and Eli fail to recognize God's grace and fail to value it, fail to live according to it. And so look what happens in verse 29. The prophet continues to talk to Eli, and he says to them, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons, listen to this, above me, by making yourselves fat, with the choices of every offering of my people Israel. So Eli's sons, their actions, they're obvious, right? They're sleeping with prostitutes. They're taking the fat of the offering. I mean, this is obvious. But here what we find is Eli, the father, cannot escape blame for his influence as well. As he also enjoyed, what, the fat from the offering also. Remember, the prophet is saying, the Lord is saying this to you, Eli. And so his guilt also lays in his failure to rebuke his sons, as we see, severely for their sin, and to call them out, but he also was joining them in it. And so what's the consequence of this? We're not going to read all of it, but if you look at verse 30 through 36, the prophet lays it out. Because of your lack of attentiveness, because your involvement, Eli, with your son's sin and because of their sin. Look at verse 31 at the very end. I just want to read this. It says, there will not be an old man in your house. And that says a lot. He tells Eli, you're not going to live much longer and your sons will die young. And that happens. In chapter 4, we see that. Eli dies. The sons of Eli die. And then what God does is he cuts completely off the branch, the Levitical priest branch of Eli's family. He severs it. He's had enough. He's had enough. Um, and so that's the consequence of Eli's influence, of his son's 
lack of dependence, there's lack of obedience. They undervalued the grace of God. Let's go to the other side of the street, right? The house of Elkanah. This is Hannah's husband, Samuel's father. And look at Samuel. We'll begin with Samuel. Look at verse 11 in chapter 2. Verse 11 in chapter 2, it says, Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And look at verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord, and as a boy wearing a linen ephod. Samuel was ministering faithfully before the Lord. Now, now what the writer wants to see here, what God wants us to see, is this is in contrast with Eli's sons. And here is Samuel being faithful before the Lord. Not like Eli's sons. Instead, he lived sensitively before the Lord. Even in the midst of Eli's sons being there. Now think about that. Samuel must be younger, right? Probably quite a bit younger than, than these other two boys. And yet, in, in the midst of that influence, or potential influence, Samuel continues to live faithfully and sensitively before the Lord, ministering and worshiping there in Shiloh. And his parents aren't even there. And look at verse 26. It tells us, it says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. Eli's sons were not growing in favor with the Lord. We're not growing in favor with men. The complete opposite. But Samuel was. That's an interesting verse here. It's very similar. The very same thing that we find in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. When it's talking about Jesus as well. These same words used about Samuel growing in favor with the Lord and with man. And then look at chapter 3. I want you to see this verse. Look at verse 7. It says, now Samuel, there in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Now, this is an interesting verse, but I want us to see it here because it shows us his growth. In verse 7, um, it tells us Samuel. Now, that word Samuel in Hebrew right there is a little different in chapter 3. It's a word used to describe where he is in life, and it's a word to use to speak of a teenager. And so he's a teenager here. In fact, Josephus believes he's probably more like 12, maybe almost 13. But whatever the case, he's in those teen years. And it says he did not know the Lord yet. Now, what I want us to hear here is that doesn't mean that Samuel didn't have a relationship with God. I don't think that's what that means there. In fact, it seems as though he, he did. I think what it does mean is that he had not come to know the Lord as he was about to come to know the Lord. That the Lord was going to now communicate to him, having heard his voice speaking directly to him. He hadn't yet heard that yet and known the Lord in that way as of yet. Now, Samuel was greatly influenced, greatly influenced by his mom. And look at this in chapter 1. I want us to go back and see this. If you want to flip, we're going to go through chapter 1 a little bit in chapter 2, but I want us to see Hannah's influence because what we see is she, unlike Eli, she valued God's grace. She celebrated God's grace. And how do we see that? Look at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 1. You remember what she did last week? Eli is, is three. And, and she's ready now to take him. And she's not just dropping him off the daycare, right? 
This isn't a weekend up, up at Pine Cove. You wouldn't do that with your three-year-old anyway, I don't think, but uh, unless you were hanging out with him, family camp. No, you, you, she's dropping him off forever to house the Lord, forever. She leaves him there, but before she does, look at the offering she gives. In verse 24, it says, Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour, a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young, and there they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. I want you to hear what, what Hannah is doing here with this sacrifice. This sacrifice is bigger than what's required when a vow is met by God. It, it's, it's beyond what God had required. You know what that tells us? Is that Hannah recognized what God had done for her was too good to be true. Too good to be true. And she expresses that in the sacrifice. She had come face to face with the grace of God and it blew her away. That's what this sacrifice meant, this offering. Too good to be true. Isn't that what the grace of God is this morning? Too good to be true. It should blow us away. It did, Hannah. And she even expresses it in words. Look at chapter 2, 1 through 10. Hannah's prayerful song, we're not going to read it, but here's what I'll just tell you it says, for the sake of time, is she gives gratitude and praise to God for, for providing, yes, a, a child. That's why her heart is exalted, but she also speaks of the salvation of God. How great God's salvation is and that there is none like him. Not only that, in verse 3 through 4, she states that God will humble those who view themselves as self-sufficient. So those who don't need the grace of God. God's going to humble. She says that. And then in verse 5 through 8, she declares that the Lord will help those. That the Lord will show grace to those who cast themselves on him. What is that? Dependence. Those who recognize, I can't do this. I can't live out this Christian life on my own. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. I need help. Those who cast themselves on God, depend on him. She celebrates that. God will help them. And as a result, she concludes, verse 9 and 10, that she praises God that the godly and the wicked will face vastly different destinies. And so Hannah celebrates, values the grace of God. And she models this. She has modeled it for the short amount of time that she has Samuel in the home. But she continues to. Look at verse 19 through 21 of chapter 2. It says, his mother would make him a little robe, bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and say, may the Lord give you children from the woman uh, in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah. She conceived, gave birth to three sons, two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Hannah and her husband would go up, support, and encourage Samuel year after year, showing him support from his mom and dad. And God continued to show his grace toward Hannah in providing five more children and growing Samuel up. And so what do we see here? That Hannah's influence was great. It was great on Samuel, even with the situation as him being far off. Her life made a big impact on her boy. And what was the consequence of that? 
The consequence was that we see is that Samuel continued to grow closer to God. Look at this in verse 19 through 21 of chapter 3, if you don't mind jumping there. And then we'll get to some application. Look what verse 19 through 21 says. <clears throat> it says, Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fail. Let none of his words fall to the ground. What do we find here? Samuel continues to grow. Remember in chapter 3, he's probably in his teenage years. He's growing up in the way of the Lord. But not only that, what we find here is now God is communicating to him. And God is telling him what to say, what to communicate. He's going to communicate something. Uh, Eli is going to communicate to the Israelites' people. He's going to play a huge part, right, in the life and the history of Israel. So what does this mean? He's now going to be a prophet. And then look what it says in verse 20. All Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What powerful influence we can have as parents to impact our kids' lives. We see it with Eli, and we see it with Hannah. Eli, many of us would say, well, that's what we should not do, right? Some of us live by that motto. I'm not going to raise my kids like this. So we see what we should not do, obviously. But with Hannah, we see this woman who influenced her son greatly, greatly. And so I want us to think about that this morning, the power of our parental influence, or really the power of our influence, period. As we see in Scripture, we have great power to influence our kids one way or the other. It's not about a guaranteed formula. It's interesting. If you go back and you look at over uh, the 1900s, especially, up until now, um, it wasn't till close to the turn of the millennial, probably in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, when, when books started to be written on parenting. And so for a long time, what you had was this, if you wanted to be a Christian parent, right? You, you did this. You lived by this. And now there's thousands upon thousands of books, right, out there and, and teaching us, right, and some great, some good. But there's no guaranteed formula. I, I want you to hear that. And I want you to hear that as parents, you and I are not the good shepherd, Right? You and I cannot change our kids' hearts. Even though, oh, we so want to, right? We cannot change our child's heart. Only Jesus can change our kids' hearts. The point that I believe we get from, for parents and kids today from today's text is this, is that you and I, we can't change the story of God. But we've got to remember the story of God. And so what do I mean by that? And here's what I mean. Is we've got to remember it's about grace. It's about grace. That's what it was about for Hannah. That's what it's supposed to be about for us. Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her book that she wrote for parents to read to kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible, she says something in it. I want to read to you this morning that, that I love. 
She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, you bet. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy, kind of like him this morning. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes. Sometimes they do it on purpose. They get afraid. They run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules, she says, or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far off country to win back a lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. And that's the story our kids need to hear. Whether they're three or whether they're teenagers like like Samuel, they need to hear that story over and over again. It's all about the grace of God, the free favor of the Lord that has been lavished on us through Jesus Christ. And Hannah knew the grace of God. She modeled it. And Samuel valued the grace of God, just like his mom did. In comparison to Eli and his sons, they were showed the grace of God, but they didn't value the grace of God. So I want to think about this this morning. What, What does that look like? I mean, what might that look like for you and I in in parenting. So I kind of thought about it this week, and I thought about, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to share an example from when I was a kid and something I did. Um, I can remember it vividly. I was five. I was in kindergarten at Davis Elementary. And me and my twin brother, we were playing in the sandbox, and my twin brother threw dirt at me, sand at me. Not that my brother would ever do anything like that. But he threw dirt at me. And I remember getting so mad. I mean, I can remember this vividly today. And we, you know, he had his, you know, red striped shirt on. I had my blue and white striped shirt on because that's what parents of twins do. They try to get you to match or as close as possible, right? And if you do that, that's cool. Um, we live through it. Um, and so, <laughs> just kidding. I think it is cool. I'd do it. Uh, it's easy makes it easier. just costs a lot. Anyway, <laughs> so I remember taking sand and retaliating to my brother, and I didn't just throw it, man. I took it. I stuffed it in his mouth. <laughs> I'll show you. I'm, young, I'm older than you by one minute, but I'm older. <laughs> I stuffed it in his mouth. All right. We can go now. <laughs> now, I needed to be disciplined, and I, I was. Uh, Much like Eli's kiddos, they needed to be disciplined and called out, Uh, and I was, and we need to do that. Scripture tells us that. Proverbs 23, 13 says this, do not withhold discipline from your kiddos. Even if you strike him with the rod, he will not die. And God says in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son he accepts. So discipline is loving. It is Good. And I was disciplined. I was disciplined at school. I remember that. I was disciplined at home. But, but the question came to me this week as I was thinking about this, how could we apply the grace of God to that scenario of my stupidity in the sandbox, right? 
How can we apply the grace of God as parents and communicate to our kids, even yes, we discipline them and teach them in that moment, but how do we express and communicate the grace of God as well? So I want to give you something practical that I think is, is helpful. It's helpful for me to think through this sermon and, and, and the model of Hannah. And this is hard to do, though. Hard to do. Something that it's hard for me to do, something that hard for us as parents to do, and that night, this is hard. But how do we model grace? So take the situation. My parents would probably say something like this right after that happened, or I got home, or they got the phone call, probably the phone call. They would probably look at me and say, Jerry, you will love your brother because God says to, and you will not let your anger turn into such an action or stuffing dirt in his mouth, and you better start now or else doing this, right? Me, right? We would do that. Be like, yeah, that sounds good, right? But is that grace? That grace. See, at the time, I was not in Christ. I was five. I was still in Adam. I would eventually come to know Jesus in about a year or two. I was unsaved, and so I was to love my brother and not get angry at him and show self-control while a kindergarten boy He threw dirt at me, though. <laughs> As a parent, if I am simply trying to get my kiddo to be good and loving and not do things that they shouldn't do, doesn't mean we don't teach them right or wrong, but if that's what I'm doing, how am I any different at the end of the day than a Mormon? It's the question. If I do that, have I just given the law, which the law is good, Paul says. We need to show our kids the law because it does something really good. It shows them what? Their weakness and their sin, their failures. We all need that, and that is good. But what does grace look like? Because they need grace. They need to know what grace is. And so instead, grace in this situation could sound like this, not with pointed finger, which is hard to do sometimes, but with an arm around, right? Because we want them to know relationship. But instead, if your kid is an Adam like I was, here's maybe what it should have sounded like, maybe. I want you to love your brother, not get angry at him and have self-control, but I know that it is going to be hard for you to do that at times. That's why Jesus came to save us. He loved perfectly everyone, even though he got angry, he showed us that we do not have to sin in our anger and that we can forgive and not retaliate. I'm going to pray for you that you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and you know his love. That's what it could look like for those still in Adam. But what about those who are in Christ? What if in that moment I was in Christ? What would it look like? My parents with an arm around? I think it could look like this. Jerry, are you mean? <laughs> are you mean? Remember, I'm in Christ. And they would come around and answer and say, no. That's not who you are. You're a child of God. That's who you are. So let's ask Jesus to do something. Let's ask Jesus to help you. To be generous. Let's ask Jesus to help you be loving toward your brother and not retaliate.
So what are we doing there with our words? Again, doesn't mean there's not discipline. Doesn't mean we don't bring in the law because it has its place. Remember Paul says it's good. But what we are doing is we're communicating grace to them. We're communicating who they are and what they need. Speaking into them who they are and their great need for Jesus. Because what's the goal of parenting? It's not obedience. It's not obedience. The goal is dependence. The fruit of dependence is obedience. The goal is dependence. You see, I want my kiddos, Annette wants our kiddos, you, you want your kiddos, no doubt, to depend on Jesus. Recognizing just as Hannah did that she could do nothing on her own to change her barren situation. Only the Lord could do that. And she declared that grace. She celebrated that grace. She modeled that grace. And that was the work that the Lord was doing in Hannah's life. And so Samuel, Samuel as, a, as a result, he valued the grace of God. And was sensitive to the Lord in his own life. And that's what God wants us to model. Is a dependence on the Lord. And that's what he wants us to show our kiddos. We need Jesus. Not just good moral kids. Because how is that different than a Mormon? We want to raise kids that are dependent on the Lord. And out of that dependence grows obedience. So what do we got to do? We got to model to them that God's grace is all sufficient. That's what Paul said. Jesus told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul understood that God's power is seen, it's developed in what? Weaknesses and failures. And it's never developed anywhere else. It's got to be seen there. And so grace is Jesus himself. And our weakness is where we learn to lean on Jesus and his power. And so first, as a parent, we must be okay with who we are in Jesus. And recognize our own dependence on him. Our own struggles, our own shortcomings, and our need for Jesus. And we need to rest in our identity as parents and this makes us, in return, available to serve our kids with that same grace. And so as parents, we're to communicate, we're to model this grace, for it magnifies Jesus. It shows them, it shows us, our weaknesses and need to depend on him so that they will, as we are, growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's what Hannah modeled, grace. And this is a team effort. As we look at this text this morning, I have a lot of questions about Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Where's Elkanah in the whole story? I mean, he's taken, you know, Hannah to the house of the Lord once a year. He's there showing, it seems, some kind of support maybe to Samuel uh, in, in chapter 2. But, but really what we see is we see the expression of the life of Hannah. But, but here's what I want you to see. This is a team effort. As husbands and wives, we're, we're together with Jesus, raising our kiddos. You may be here this morning, and, and you're doing it on your own. I want you to hear this morning. You're not on your own. It's a team effort. Jesus is partnering with you and parenting your kid, and he wants to show his grace. And lastly, I think what we learned from this text as well is that we are not promised kids who will walk with the Lord, and that's hard. 
Even though you raised them up in the way of the Lord, just like Hannah did, God has not blessed with godly offspring all parents who had the same desires for their kids. Children, in the end, they're responsible for their own decisions as they, they grow up. And that's hard. I, I've seen it. It's a struggle. It's hard on parents. I tell parents often when they're in that situation, hey, pray for your kids. Model the grace of Jesus Christ. Likewise, children can also grow up in an ungodly environment and still come to know the Lord. That's the grace of God. So let me encourage you today and let you know, hey, your influence is vital. There's much power in your influence. And so how and what should our influence look like? It should look like the grace of God. It should be grace that we speak and we model into our kids' lives so that they, in return, depend on God. Not on some kind of self-righteousness, but on the grace of God. That's what really parenting is all about, is modeling that to our kiddos so that they would know and love Jesus. God's grace is amazing. And you're here today and you hear us talk about grace and you hear us talk about the story of God. How God sent his son from heaven, from a far off country. He sent him to earth. He left his throne. He left everything to come down here for you and I. And laid down his life. It came a substitute for you and I so that we would not have to pay the punishment, the wrath of God that we all deserve. But instead, Jesus took it upon himself. He paid that price for us so that we could know salvation. We could be saved. And we could know the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. If we would believe, if we would trust in Jesus, cast ourselves, cast our dependence on him and trust him. That's what God has done for us. So today, if you never believed in Christ, I pray today you would trust him with your soul, with your life, and believe that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. He saved you. And he has offered to you forgiveness of sins, which no one else can, only him. So believe in Christ today. Let me pray. Father, today, we are grateful for the grace that you have lavished upon us in your son, Jesus God, may we, like Hannah, value, celebrate, be filled with gratitude for your grace. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves through your son Jesus by putting him on a cross, raising him from the dead so that we might have eternal life. So Lord, I pray that we would know that for ourselves. I pray that we would grow in that grace and the knowledge of Christ each day. And so we thank you today. We celebrate that even now as we come to communion, we celebrate the grace of God in our Savior. And so thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna invite us to come. We're gonna...